0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Today, I'm having a conversation with my friend Miranda about Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. We also discuss our reading styles. Miranda recommends a favorite TV show. And in time for Thanksgiving, I recommend a favorite foodie
1: podcast.
0: Enjoy. Miranda, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Catherine.
0: Thank you for joining me. So, Miranda, um, I met you when we were living in St. Louis. We went to church together, and um, you, Miranda, were the organizer of the book club. I don't even remember that. That was kind of a while ago. And so I felt like we had a lot in common when we first met um, with our love of reading and also Jane Austen movies and also Trader Joe's.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what more do you need? Reading, exactly, Joe's, Jane Austen.
0: That's right, that's the basis of any friendship. So tell me, what's
1: new with you lately? Um, Not a lot, I'm still adjusting to having two kids and it's almost been a year, but that's okay. Sometimes things take a while. We are doing well and just, um, yeah, I, I feel like I started walking again, which has been so good. For my mental health and just my overall disposition which and it's a pretty nice time of year to be walking you started i agree about the end of august so that's good
0: yeah that's a good i've been walking as well during like i've been taking a little break in the middle of work and going on a short little walk just a 20-minute walk because sometimes i feel like just getting out into the sunshine and the air really does help that's really good and I think I have barely seen you since, because we moved away in, from St. Louis about 18 months ago, so I have seen you a couple times since your new baby was born, but I haven't seen you a lot since. And so, how's she doing? i been engulfed,
1: I think, yeah. by the <laughs> entire process. I know you came up and we went out to lunch and dinner or something, but um, yeah, she's great. I'm really lucky you have two phenomenal girls they are smart and they like each other and that's what we wanted to have, you know, another sibling. And I'm just really happy to say that our family is complete and now we can, you know, get out of <laughs> nap time purgatory and all the, all the things that come with having a, a newborn. But yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine, but it sounds like a lot of work <laughs> um, more way more than a full-time job for sure. Yeah. Um, and speaking of your, your smart, very well-read, daughters you have um you're you're like a professional book person i know
1: um your background is like you're a librarian is that right yeah yeah so i spent some time mostly in academic libraries and then a brief stint in a public library but i stepped away from libraries about 5 years ago and have kind of morphed that into children's book reviews, working with different publishers and that's been really satisfying.
0: Yeah, I see you have these beautiful, gorgeous pictures on Instagram of the books that you're reviewing and they just look really fun. You always have like kind of a they're posed really well or whatever. They're really
1: well done. Oh, thank you. Our I mean our goal is to just get the best books into the hands of, you know, parents and educators and I have a A few people who say they buy them for their grandkids or their nieces and nephews. So, and there's, I mean, there are hundreds of children's books published every year, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even thousands. And we only get to showcase a a few, really, a drop in the bucket. But hopefully there's some of the best of the best.
0: That's really cool. And are you using a special camera when you do that?
1: Oh, I wish. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's mostly just my iPhone. And then sometimes I'll do some edits in Photoshop. Um, Depends on the image. I've tried to get a little bit more professional as the years go by, but you can definitely see it's it's evolution over time.
0: I think they're just really fun. They're really cute. And it's always fun to kind of glimpse. Usually you don't have your daughter's face in the foreground but you know maybe a glimpse of her hair or the back of her head or something like that so
1: I always think it's kind of fun yeah it's um you know it's tricky because people have noticed this when we're out and about because of her face I've I've started to use it a little bit less just with um some caution of you know what you're putting out on the internet and so it's um but it's been fun and she's usually a good sport about helping out
0: (laughs) I bet she really loves doing that (laughs)
1: I I will say there have been occasional bribes, but usually they don't happen too often. So now I just well, have then a she stash really
0: loves doing of, it, and she's getting yeah. bribed
1: for it. Well, now we just have Halloween candy that I can use till you know whenever. <laughs> that lasts that's until perfect. Valentine's, right?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, that's cool. And so, do you with all of this, um, like your sort of business essentially? Do
1: you have time to read for yourself? Oh yes, and. I will say not as much as before I have children. I've kept track of my my books since 2008 on Goodreads. I know you're, you also use Goodreads. I do. Um, and it's just to see how that has shifted over the years. But no, I think most of my reading is middle grade novels these days. Um, I have read a couple parenting books this year, but... Um, And of course, alias grace, which is, I mean, I forgot how huge it was.
0: When do you find time to read? Because as you said, you now have two small children.
1: No, that's a really good um, question. And my husband and I can, we were just talking about that the other day, how we need to be more cognizant of modeling the reading behavior. I generally always read before I go to bed, just to kind of turn my brain off. And then if, I know that I can have my kids involved in a project, like even if it's 10 or 15 minutes, then I'll try to steal some reading time. If if the little one's napping and the older one is, you know, doing a craft project, I'll do that. Or um, audiobooks, like I've actually turned a lot to audiobooks because I find that I can listen while I'm doing other household chores, like the dishes or making dinner or laundry or all the things that need to get done.
0: That's a really great thing. I think a lot of I mean audiobooks are just kind of really I think in the on the rise. Um and I know that I like listening to things while I'm doing other work or I'm taking a walk or whatever it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you use the library's app or do you use do you have an Audible subscription? So, I've gone back and forth. I do like Hoopla and I know that there is a newer platform that I haven't downloaded i think it's libby is that right through most yeah. libraries mm-hmm. yeah and i've heard really good things about that um but i've gone back and forth with my audible subscription Uh, sometimes i'll have it for three months or six months and i'll take a break but yeah i usually always have a couple different platforms to listen to and it's nice because you can do it on faster speed so you can get through a little bit quicker but, yeah um when it's a middle grade novel, for some reason, I feel like I really like to have the book. And I do I do get quite a few of those from publishers too. So I, I like to try to devote some time to those. But,
0: yeah, I think yeah. it's good to mix it up a little bit. I, I, I try to do a mixture of ebooks and um, paper books, but I, I don't do as many audiobooks. I think for me, audiobooks are better when um, it's a nonfiction I think that's, that's kind of what I've decided is my genre, unless the narrator oh. is just really good on some of the fictional humor kind of books.
1: No, that's true. I think um, you can definitely, if you find a narrator that you just can't get enough of, I'm trying to remember one, My Lady Jane. Uh, that seems to have skyrocketed through the roof last year, um, maybe the year before, but the narrator was so good. And of course, the British accent—you can't ever have enough of that. Of course, yes, <laughs> but, I love British accents. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that your genre is specifically nonfiction. That um, yeah, I like that.
0: Yep, yeah. it's. I think it's because I re- I listen to so many podcasts, and it's kind of a similar type of pace with yes. nonfiction, and I, I it just kind of flows over that way.
1: So, it's helpful, I think, to have um a way to look back at it. So I'm curious if you when you're doing nonfiction, do you bookmark anything or highlight as you're going along through the audiobook?
0: I don't. If there's something either when I'm reading or listening to it that I want to remember, I will take notes. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes what I have done if it's something I want to listen to a lot of, I'll like go see if the library has an ebook version of it really quick and download both the ebook and the audio or something like that where I'm doing both at the same time. I'm reading and listening.
1: Yeah, I found that too. And often when I'll listen to an audiobook that's nonfiction, particularly parenting books, I'll find that I'll want to go purchase a physical copy so I can reference it again um, later on.
0: Yeah. That one other audiobook that comes to mind that I read that was nonfiction was The More of Less. And it was like about minimalism, which I'm a big fan of. And mm-hmm. so I felt like I didn't need to write down that many notes. It was like, it was more inspirational maybe than really educational because I kind of already had the the basics of minimalism down.
1: Yeah. And no. so it was really
0: just more like understanding his perspective. And so...
1: You are definitely great at having a variety of reading material. I like that. Um, I tend to go in waves. I feel like I'll get really into fiction and then I'll leave it alone for years and then I'll just be nonfiction. (laughs) But um, it sounds like you kind of keep it more well-rounded through all seasons.
0: I try to. I I think within those seasons, there are definitely waves where I'll read more nonfiction versus fiction or kind of go into a... British romance, you know, um, bender, but.
1: Um, <laughs> well, and don't you belong to, is it two or three book clubs right now?
0: Yeah, it's three book clubs at this point. So yeah, so <laughs> I'm th- that keeps me well-rounded too, because you're always reading something that you may not have picked out for
1: yourself. And so it's a good way to get new books and new ideas. Right. And this is actually the first year in maybe a decade that I haven't belonged to book club so it's funny that we met in a book club and then I know we've talked about different things we've read and we were in a couple different iterations of book clubs together but um, yeah it's been nice to step back for a little bit but I feel myself kind of itching to get back into one preferably one where the participants read the book
0: Yeah, that is a common um, downfall of book clubs. Is if people don't read the book, then um, there's not much to discuss. And even though we like the fellowship and sort of the camaraderie of people, we always want to bring have people come anyway. But um, it's a different kind of experience when you've all read the book. Mm -hmm. I I have found just I after reading books, I just want to talk about them. I want to see what other people are thinking about them. So um, that's kind of the idea of this podcast is to get to choose my own books and then also get people that I want to talk to about these books. Um, so there's kind of my own selfish incentive. But in just in general, um, the more I can talk about books, the more I enjoy my reading life in general.
1: I love it. I think the whole concept for this podcast is well executed and you have certainly given a lot of thought to it and it's already off to a great start. So mm-hmm. um, I hope you keep doing it. I really do. I, I know that feeling of wanting to share a book that you just couldn't put down or you have characters or the plot or something that you want to talk about with somebody else and recommend. And um, yeah, I found more and more, as I've gotten a little bit older, my mom is kind of getting more interested in reading. And so I've offered her some recommendations and it's so satisfying when, you know, the reader also enjoys it. It can go the other way too, which is also, um, you know, that can happen, but, it's fun when, when you have that common bond of literacy. I think that's what I'm trying to do on a, a smaller scale with the children's literature because I can, you know, I can plow through seven books that are 30 <laughs> pages in a day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <So. laughs>
0: Alias Grace is a work of fiction by Margaret Atwood, based on an actual event where Grace Marks, a maidservant in 1840s Ontario, was convicted of murdering her employer, Thomas Kinnear, and his mistress and housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery. She was joined in the conviction by fellow manservant, James McDermott. While McDermott was hanged for the crime, Grace was spared capital punishment and sentenced to life in prison. She claims to have no memory of the murder and declares she is innocent. A young American doctor is hired by local sympathizers who are trying to prove her innocence by curing her memory loss to find out what really happened. The story switches between Dr. Simon Jordan's current life in Kingston, Ontario in third person and back to first person narrative as Grace tells Dr. Jordan about her history, um, starting with her immigration from Ireland and becoming a servant to rich households in Toronto all the way up to the events surrounding the murder. Remember, this is a spoilerful conversation. Um, when I was thinking about this podcast, I definitely thought of you and reached out to you because I know um, you're just one of the people when I think about reading, I think about you. And when I showed you my book list, you chose, um, you said you were going to reread Alias Grace. And so that to me is even more interesting because now I want to know why you wanted to actually reread it.
1: Well, so I'll probably answer your question with a question because you had reached out with a list of what I want to say, maybe eight to 10 titles that you were considering. And I was just curious about how you came up with that list. Was that just kind of a, these are things that have been on my to be read pile or?
0: Yeah, several of my um, guests now have asked that question and it really was, um, these are on my to be read list and trying to get a variety of things. I think so far um, the theme for all the books has been murder and that mm-hmm. will change for next month. I think, I hope, I hope the book that I've chosen doesn't have a murder plot hidden so, in, in, in it somewhere. But, um, but yeah, I've been, I was trying to kind of pick different things um, and although they're all still have kind of a
1: flavor of me, I think, because I chose them. Mm-hmm. Sure. Definitely. Well, I, read, I first read Margaret Atwood in college, so The Handmaid's Tale, I feel like was pretty standard um, reading material, at least it was in my women's literature class, and I remember she was coming to give a reading and a lecture in Salt Lake. I was living in Salt Lake at the time, and I wanted to have read more than just one of her works. So it was probably around 2008 or so, and I picked up Alias Grace. And at the time, I remember being completely engulfed by it, just relishing the details and being driven to, (laughs) it's such a paradox because driven to finish it, you want to know what happens, then I don't know if you do this, but I find that when I really am enjoying a book, the last several chapters I'll slow down and I'll pace that out and I'll try to make it last for a few weeks even. That's cool.
0: Yeah, actually it's kind of funny because that's almost the same reason I chose the book for my list because I had read The Handmaid's Tale. Um, It wasn't in college, but it was actually something that was recommended to me after I finished college and I was trying to get back into reading because sometimes, depending on what your your field of study is, your reading life takes a hit when you're in school all the time. Cause you're just yes. so tired of mm-hmm. looking at pages, like the words on pages. So um, I was getting recommendations and someone recommended that to me and I absolutely loved it. Um, just super riveting right off the top. Um, which I feel like I was surprised. I was expecting that more of that in this book because um, of, of my experience with the handmaid's tale but it was much more of a slow burn which was really kind of interesting and took me off guard i was like oh no did i pick a dud but i was like it's margaret atwood i can't have picked a dud because of course (laughs) you can't um but i did see i have seen the trailer for the netflix series but i decided that i was not going to look to watch the movie um until after i'd had the podcast so um just i could talk about the book alone versus the movie um in contrast but maybe you'll have to give us like some some updates about which was better and that kind of a thing
1: i agree with you though this is a slow burn and i would forgotten that because i focused so much on kind of the the meat of this book mm-hmm. and i had also forgot that much of it is epistolary which i'm actually not the greatest fan of so to revisit that was um, kind of startling and um, a reminder that, oh, you know, reading tastes can change, but I still found it just as compelling, although maybe in different ways this time.
0: Yeah, so uh, to me, like reading it really did feel like it, I was reading a 19th century Gothic novel. Um so, I mean, I kind of, I was which I wasn't expecting, but kind of once I got into it, it was really um, fascinating. Um, what did you, what is, yeah, I guess, what are your general impressions upon rereading it?
1: Well, <laughs> I will say, first off, I think I made Dr. Jordan a bit of a saint in my mind when I was reading it the first time. And he was, you know, kind of this heroine who was coming, not heroine, hero, rather, who was coming in and getting to the psychology, getting to the neurology of why this had happened, right? He was there to make amends and, and come to a conclusion, some definitive end. And it wasn't even so much that he was concerned about her guilt or innocence, but um, I, I studied a little bit of um, brain science and completely blanking on the word right now, neurology, uh, neuroscience in, in college. And I just found that part especially fascinating And then reading it the second time, there are moments with Dr. Simon Jordan where he, at the very beginning we meet him and he says, he thinks about Grace as a prostitute and what it would be like to be with her that way. And then later on in the book, he feels like he's being strung along. Like she has this secret and she's kind of, um, putting upon him and just stringing him on and so the way he kind of looks at and associates with women his relationship with his mother and then his eventual kind of fling the entire scene essentially Mm -hmm. because of his own relations his own personal relations and all the work that he had done I mean, there was more to it in the book, um, and maybe we'll mm-hmm. get to that. But um, so, takeaway <laughs> the second read through, I kind of thought he was a bit more villainous than I ever yeah. initially gave him credit for. Yeah,
0: me. and he was definitely very self interested. I mean, even his whole the whole premise of him going to quote unquote help Grace recover her memories was so that he'd have um sort of a resume builder so that he could build his own money for-profit asylum um so i think yeah very interesting it's interesting that you said um that you he kept thinking that she had this secret and that um because i just so of course one of the reasons i like margaret atwood in general is just the gender dynamics because i really I'm a big mm-hmm. feminist, and so I really like the contrast that she shows. Um, and so I kind of feel like with him, it's all about, you know, essentially the women are there for his pleasure or his or his monetary gain, as it is with um, the grace in her, her case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of when all of it goes to pieces, and it looks like he might actually have to, you know, have commitment and be married to somebody or, or be in a long-term relationship with somebody he just ups and leaves um, right. and and just kind of maybe the Victorian aspect of you know women and men not understanding each other and that women are all this mysterious thing that no one can understand but that men control still so it's just really it was really interesting in that in that
1: respect right and you mentioned kind of stepping back into a gothic novel and it felt so polarized but then again also so modern and I think that is what Margaret Atwood excels at these supposedly um archaic notions of gender that are are not I mean we still deal with this today and um feeling like the book starts out with this kind of quote of moral training of the weaker sex right this is what they Mm -hmm. were at the outset, to get to the um, the cerebral and the the deeper things behind, beyond what were happening inside women, you know, that men were there to kind of fix them. And um, mm-hmm. I just, I find so much of that in, in modern society as well.
0: Yeah. So I really, um, I think the book, her as grace sort of unfolds her story of her life you know she starts with her essentially her birth and goes on mm-hmm. um until like the present day practically you know, with her murders or whatever but um you know i so part of that was a little slow at first and that's kind of what, like oh this book is going to be slow but you know she really does draw you in um the book what one of the people in the book referenced Shahrazad, in terms of um you know, telling a story and, and getting and kind of wrapping um, Dr. Jordan in her web of her tale. And the whole time she's quilting, she's making these quilts. And the book is sectioned out into sections that are named after quilt patterns. And actually, in my mm-hmm. book, it even looked like they may have had a little picture of the actual quilt pattern was kind of interesting. Um, and I just kind of thought about the idea of quilting being putting pieces together that don't necessarily belong but they're making it into what she's forming so it kind of makes me wonder because um, I think the book leaves sort of the question of whether or not she was being devious or innocent or who knows about her her true intentions her true story but that she's taking these pieces of her life and her experiences and laying them out in a way to create an illusion that she wants to create and to create the person that she wants people to think that she is. Um, I thought it was a really interesting kind of analogy.
1: That is really astute. And I think you're absolutely spot on there because she has not only her own memory, which as we know, memory is subject to so many um, difficulties and fallibilities especially since when we meet her and we meet her interview with Dr. Jordan and her conveyance to him it's 15 years past right Mm -hmm. so this has happened when she's 16 this um, murders of Nancy Kinnear and um, or Nancy Montgomery and Mr. Kinnear and then we meet her again when she's conveying this to Dr. Jordan, but she has read all the things and she's heard Mm -hmm. all the newspaper reports and she remembers what was at the trial or she has, you know, people reminding her of what was said. And so she has to put together what she wants people to know of her now. And it's also in the context of she was under the impression that what Dr. Jordan was doing would also be some sort of a means to set her free. Mm-hmm. Right. So
0: it was her own self-interest mm-hmm. as well. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it was really interesting. Um, and there was a kind of, and I, I don't know if you have a better um, insight into this. There was, you know, it kept going on about how she kind of had these hallucination of these peonies that were, um, made of cloth, these flowers that were made of cloth. And I was then looking up, trying to understand like, what was the significance of these flowers? Um, and, and they say that they being the website that I looked up, um, was essentially the flowers representing women, um, as both symbols of life and death in the sense that flowers, when they're alive, they're really alive, but they're short lived and they die. Um, Mm. Do you have any insight on the flowers?
1: So I thought about that too, and that flowers are often ascribed certain meanings and peonies of um, joy and like prosperity and kind of um, long life and good marriage and things like that. But then they're also often put on graves. Um, I know that growing up, we did that all around during Memorial Day because that's when they would be Mm -hmm. blooming and Mm -hmm. so visiting all of these departed relatives taking bouquets of peonies or peonies depending on what part of the country you live in but um, yeah they come up it comes up so often in the book and you know very significant at the at the residence when she first arrives and in Grace's dreams and I think you're exactly right. They are these ephemeral things, right? They only are, their flower is only visible for a season, but then they mm-hmm. have other parts of them growing underground and that aren't visible, dormant, you know, especially something like like this, that it's a perennial that comes back every year. Um, you know, that could be part of her story, reemerging. Um, just a couple
0: of thoughts. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. I did like the idea of, yeah, her story re-emerging and changing every time or not necessarily changing, but the way she views it is different every time. Um, and another thing that the website they looked up had said that the, since the cloth flowers, kind of the idea of a, being a false perception. And I think, um, I don't know, I guess I felt like at the end of the book, well, by the end of the book, I had come to the conclusion that um, she was weaving a perception that she wanted everyone else to see for the most part and that she was actually, um, like she may have had mental illness, but um, she was aware of what she was doing. It was, or at least I think she knew the true story and she was presenting a certain front
1: can you expound a little bit more like yeah so to me
0: it really came to the scene of the hypnosis Mm -hmm. um because so we know so the hypnosis is performed by essentially jeremiah the peddler who we Mm -hmm. know they have a shared history together um and then um they, so they've met. So they've they've had this conversation. Bef- like they they were, they came into the room together. So the assumption that they've had this conversation together before they got together, and I was just kind of wondering, well, what is like what was their conversation? I mean, I was curious, but the fact that when she's under the influence of this false, you know, the near we know because we understand that Jeremiah has no powers of of hypnosis, mm-hmm. um, that it's all a fake. And so her reaction to that, to me, like really showed her true colors. Like she was using that, um, that veil literally, um, to, to be able to speak her true mind because as she's been in this, in prison, she's had to present this certain front and this certain way to get the things that she wants to have a little bit more freedom you know to be in the governor's mansion to do work and kind of a thing so she's had to kind of build up this persona but when she gets behind that veil she's able to show her true self so that's kind of where i feel like by that point in time i'm like okay well she is really like that's her true thinking
1: okay so you feel like she decided that prior to this hypnosis or maybe in the moment that she was going to tell a story of Mary Whitney being mm-hmm. the one who comes in, because I don't know if you remember reading in that hypnosis part and it also comes through in the audiobook that There's two distinct voices. Like you have yes. voices and then you have this other voice that is right. um, Mary Whitney's. Right. So right. being the, Per- perpetrator essentially that she mm-hmm. was the one who committed the murders and grace had no knowledge of it. Right. So this is kind right. of, you feel like this was actually completely under grace's conscious knowledge.
0: Yeah. That's how I, that's what I came away with it because I felt like while it was a, it and it made, um, I, I feel like, Jeremiah was sort of seeking out that opportunity because it was, you know, why was he even? I mean, he was just sort of, he was really the character that I had almost the hardest time figuring out because he just kept popping up. Um, and according to the book, she was surprised to see him. And I, I it assumes it, we assume that that's a true surprise when she saw him at the um, sort of the gathering. Where he was being that he was being the doctor um, but I think at that point, at that time hes set you know he's essentially setting himself up to be able to do something for her, which is to be able to give her an alibi of um dual personality. and so I feel like he and she had some sort of brief conversation to be able to do that um, now whether or not yeah, so that, that's kind of the way I, I, I perceive that.
1: Wow. Okay. So that is a view I haven't considered, but it, it is certainly plausible. We don't know if they had a conversation prior to, mm-hmm. but it is, like you said, she spent so many years in prison and had changes in her station that she, as a prisoner, that she could have fabricated the story and believed it herself so that when she um, went into the hypnotic state, she channeled it. Um, Mm -hmm. I've kind of always cited on her innocence as grace, but seeing Mary Whitney as coming in to punish, as it's mentioned, Mm -hmm. because um, she was distressed by her own death, by her own, you know, premature death, Mm -hmm. essentially because of, um, you know, an involvement with a man, which was not uncommon, I think, Mm -hmm. happened frequently. Um, And then it it talks about and references in the book that now it was time for not only the woman to pay for the sins, but the man who was involved Mm -hmm. in that particular Mm -hmm. scenario. And that, had kind of always sat right with me that yes this makes sense grace didn't know anything about it because she had this friendship with mary whitney and she always sort of mourns her loss so they were connected and Mm -hmm. um but i mean that kind of assumes that you believe in or or have some kind of notion that possession is possible right it right. Can, de- can departed spirits have possession over bodies? And, and that gets into a whole nother uh, sure. topic.
0: Right. Right. That's that's a whole other topic. But yeah, I guess that's interesting. I didn't go in with the idea that she could be possessed. I mean, I did look up a little bit about dissociative identity disorder, um, which is kind of essentially what they were saying that she had that she had this. Mm-hmm. um you know, underlying dual personality and the dual personality comes in and, and does, um, the thing. And cause I mean, I guess I also, it, it also wasn't super clear whether or not Mary Whitney actually existed or she was creating her, um, or describing mm. the dissociative identity that she has. I mean, I think dissociative identity, when I read about it, the two or multiple personalities don't know about each other. I'm not really sure how that really works. Um, but I don't know if she had created this identity that she sometimes went into, or I mean, it was just really—it was interesting. I kind of, you know, that was kind of the gothic part about it, It kind of gave me the chills. Like at some point, I had to—I was reading it at night, and I didn't—I knew I couldn't finish the book, um, so I had to put it down. But I was like, okay, now I need to like go look at pictures of puppies or something so I can go to sleep, because <laughs> um, it got kind of you know chilly at that point in time. But um, yeah, so I guess. The, I think the other underlying question is, you know, what did she, was she aware of her murders and then what did she actually have a mental illness? And was she, and if so, if she did have cause for quote unquote insanity, um, is she then responsible for her actions if she has a mental illness?
1: Right. And that's um, certainly something to be looked at. I think there, there are many scenarios here, right? Right. Did she have a mental illness going in to the uh, penitentiary and then taken over to the asylum? If she didn't going in, she, did she develop one and she created Mary Whitney? I think there is a part where Dr. Jordan tries to find um, some mention or uh, association with Mary Whitney, but he doesn't have success, and he kind of goes down that rabbit hole of well does this person really exist or did she exist and um, there's nothing really to indicate that she did so mm-hmm. you know maybe she was completely fabricated but to your other question if somebody creates um, a scenario uh, is involved in a murder where they're not in their true identity are they responsible and I I don't think they are. I mean, but that's difficult because you have to hold someone as accountable, right? There has Mm -hmm. to be a culpable party. And how do you punish and execute the law to, um, you know, a personality that doesn't exist? You only have that individual there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is obviously this happens again and again. And I've listened to a podcast recently about this. I think it was on Criminal, where um, it was maybe a Texas lawyer who kind of invented this um, pleading the insanity case and getting people off and off and off because um, mm-hmm. they went down. I feel like it emerged in the early 70s as kind of a a thing. Obviously, okay. it existed before then. but Yeah. Um, yeah, so...
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And then I thought too, because as I was reading this book, I was reflecting on the idea of mental health and the idea of mental health treatment and where we've come so far and where we haven't come so far. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think mental health treatment, not too much prior to this story, really was about basically incarcerating these people in these asylums that were, you know, prison conditions and they weren't, there was no treatment necessarily given or there was cruel... Tortured kind of treatment provided, um, which I thought was just really an interesting thing to think about is the history of that, and then um, also sort of now. I mean, I also was thinking about prison reform while we were while I was reading this, um, because it's I was just reading a statistic that in state prisons, seventy three percent of women and fifty five percent of men have at least one mental health problem. And um, in federal prisons, 61% of women and 44% of men have at least one mental health problem. I mean, it really, you know, we are theoretically in the same way imprisoning our mentally ill. And, um, you know, I read that book I was talking about, Behave, earlier, one of the things they talk about is being accountable for your crimes if, you know, if if it's mental illness or if it's also predisposition based off of you had trauma as a childhood like at what point in time do we say that you know be committing a crime is just like the end result of all of these bad things that have happened to you um anyway so kind of thinking about we don't have like a really great way of helping people to get better in any of these situations we are just we have this only like the punishment only and not really, truly helping people reform and come back into society.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I agree because it's the unspoken and it just continues. um, Both in, you know, two decades ago, two centuries ago today, we don't really have a good system. The systems we have in place are like extremes Right. Mm -hmm. You know, extremes on the end of punishment and extremes on catching things so early. Like for, I read an article not too long ago about dealing with um, like very troubled and disturbed children, like trying Mm -hmm. to get to them at a young age for people who have a really high propensity um, towards, not having the emotional component, their amygdala of their brain functioning properly. So, um, yeah, they're, it's so disheartening. I don't know if you've read any John Green where he talks about mental illness. Turtles all the way down was one I think I read last year and he, he broaches the topic in a different way, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it comes up and then it fades away because it's that invisible disease, right?
0: Um, I was also just struck by the description of the poverty that um, she experienced and the violence that she experienced. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like her whole life, Grace didn't really make her own choices, um, She obviously, you know, did make some of her own choices, but she was just so powerless to control her environment. She had no control for so long over her own money. You know, at every turn, there's physical intimidation. Um, I mean, even at the end, I just thought it was crazy. I mean, this is I mean, you know, of course, I'm also thinking about just the ownership of women's sexuality and bodies. I think that was really on display here with um, in true Margaret Atwood form here. But just the idea that ultimately she goes from prison to an arranged marriage. You could almost say, you know, one prison to another in a way because her only way to freedom, she wasn't really choosing um, mm-hmm. Jamie Walsh, but he was there, was going to provide a home for her that wasn't,
1: right? you know, technically so, being incarcerated. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because the note at the back, Margaret Atwood's note about the real... Grace Marks and Mm -hmm. all of this that is based off that there is no evidence that she went to somebody that she came to the United States and went to, um, somebody who was waiting there for her, which I mean could have happened, but I think that was the fabricated part. And it made me a little bit hopeful that, okay, maybe she went to America, (laughs) got a new life. Nobody knew her, a new name, um, and that's part of the title, though, that kept coming back to me, like alias Grace. It was this um, Mary Whitney's alias, you know, did, was Grace her alias mm-hmm. or um, was it, you know, the title is so it can work both ways in, mm-hmm. in a multitude of ways. And then just the whole idea of her name being Grace to begin with, Grace Marks. I mean, how mm-hmm. fitting is that name for this character who's seeking grace and is only having uh, justice executed upon her again and again and again. And then finally, she has some grace extended to her, um, where it's not too late. I mean, she's what, in her mid forties, where she is essentially let out of these years of prison imprisonments first with her mm-hmm. drunken abusive father and then um you know all these different masters and and mm-hmm. maybe she's able to have a life after this.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a very hopeful way to look at it, I guess. I guess I saw it as the downside of that she was going into this arranged marriage that she really would never have chosen except that she felt coerced into it. But you're right that it didn't say um, that was a fabrication of Mar- Margaret Atwood's. I think the, aunt, the what all it had, it had said was that she had gone to a quote-unquote home provided, so yes. it could be in yes. a, a number of ways. So hopefully, it was like a um, like a women's shelter where she was retrained and well, <laughs> got and back into the workforce. Well, it would be
1: fascinating, fascinating if she had been able to find more evidence about um, Grace in the United yeah. States, obviously well yeah and
0: then and then she changes her name again right so Mm -hmm. you know that grace at that point becomes an alias of who she is currently because we don't know how she died it sounds like it sounds like she had changed her name and it changed her um not necessarily identity but had basically left behind that life as she went into the united states and and lived the rest of her life so we don't know what happened to her
1: right yeah it's um it's kind of an open-ended and that's that you know, the ambiguity of Margaret Atwood is, I think, oddly comforting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's why I've read. i am not generally read more works of hers. I'm not generally an author follower. Yeah, Some people read a lot by the same author. But mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood is one of the, like, maybe three authors I can think that I've read numerous works of. Um, but, yeah, her her openness and letting the reader determine what ending and the ambiguity that she leads along and, and essentially feeds to you. I like yeah. that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely am a um I'm a black and white person in terms of a lot of things. I like things to be concrete, but I will say I do enjoy a book that is well done that leaves it up open to the interpretation of the reader where both or where multiple options are very viable. I think there is something very interesting and it kind of keeps the book alive longer versus um something just being kind of closed and shut or open and shut. Mm-hmm. Um really it, it's kind of fun and I I did enjoy the ending of it, um, where she's just kind of like, Yeah, I'm making a quilt, you know? I'm kind of like moving on, but you know, you <laughs> well, just don't have a quilt know. with
1: three pieces. So Right. Her, with Mary th- and Nancy and Grace yeah. can be together. And I I think That is so telling. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, their stories are intertwined, and um, which is a little bit interesting, only to the extent that she knew Nancy for such a brief amount of time, like in her actual life. And then to have this person who she knew just really for a second be connected with her forever. Yeah.
0: Well, but she was because of the murder, right? So she couldn't, there's no way for her to get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, she had become connected to her. Um, yeah, she
1: had. And they say both in the notes and I think in the book that it was never, they were, she was never tried for that specific murder. Right. Because they had, tr- and even that was a little vexing. You know, they had tried
0: the mm-hmm. case
1: of Mr. Kinnear first. And because they were both found guilty, McDermott and, and Grace, that they felt no need to find the to murders To keep going, for Nancy. yeah. Right, right. So that just that these women's lives are relegated to service and um, mm-hmm. these demeaning positions. And you know what? We're not even going to find out who killed you. So Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, just one more thing to ponder on.
0: Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I thought was interesting about Grace's story was just sort of her, you know, they really go through these like mundane tasks that she does and it really kind of outlines what it's like to be in service as they say, or basically be a servant to a household. Um, and they just, you know, the, the continual theme of these separate lives between servants and masters um sort of the upstairs downstairs thing And at one point grace says that the trouble that happened at the Caneers was because there was no back staircase there was no way right. to separate there's no separation between the master of the house and the servants and so they were, it created all of this basically they're saying you know the social classes you know mixed right. and so the intermingling that created... was
1: fatal essentially right Right. And
0: and then Mary Whitney for example they they never said who it was but they hinted strongly that it was um the the father of her her um pregnancy was um the master of the house as well and so again she died for the same reason right. essentially because there was not enough separation
1: between um Right one of the sons I think is what it right. was um Right and yeah you're right I mean the the separation proves fatal in, in both cases. And I think that's, I mean, that's just telling. But then it's also it also works the other way because we f- see it when Grace is trying to explain things to Dr. Mm-hmm. Jordan and she just comes to this realization that you don't know. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You've never worn a bonnet, sir. When he asks did you look at mr She she's you know you've never worn a bonnet it's it's restrictive essentially i can't right. see i have these blinders on i can see what's straight in front of me um but i didn't want to be impertinent and and gaze at, at this new master and then she also with what did you think of the vegetables the when Doctor Jordan keeps bringing vegetables, hoping to elicit yeah. this memory I, in the root cellar, and, and yeah. then he finally asks her what she would like, rather than right. him deciding everything to bring.
0: I I think it was just another illustration of how obtuse he was. I mean he I mean I I think the book says they brought in an expert quote unquote or something, and but I was like I never felt like he was an expert. And to me, it was just the idea that he, for him, vegetables are abstract things. They're not Mm -hmm. food. You know, like it's not, you know, it's something, food is something that's brought to you and prepared on a platter. Mm -hmm. But for Grace, it's like, no, I'm starving. I've been starving my entire life. And here you're bringing me something like a potato that, you know, can I really eat that? You know, (laughs) like she's thinking about what she can
1: eat. I think one of my favorite parts is when she puts the apple, the first thing he brings her to her head. its It has such a biblical significance, mm-hmm. you know, that he brings her an apple and um, often associated with the, you know, the garden of Eden and the tempting fruit to Eve. And, and she doesn't eat it. She puts it to her head and mm-hmm. just kind of lets that, essentially sink in maybe give her um food for thought to use a terrible pun Hmm. but it's funny um, yeah it's i love that part of the book and margaret atwood just has some of the most beautiful similes i've ever read they're just dripping with um deliciousness i love them Mm mm-hmm
0: Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the quality of the writing and and just how rich everything was. Um, I could definitely see that. So what do we think about, so you mentioned a little bit about Dr. Simon Jordan and how his, maybe your perception of him has changed in your rereading of this. Um, what do you, I mean, were there any parallels between his story and Grace's story? I mean, there are definitely some contrasts that I noticed that to me, that's what stood out the most, um but were there any similarities
1: so the contrast stood out to you the most is that what you're saying
0: yeah the fact you know just being privileged
1: versus not privileged and men male versus female kind of a thing sure so i think there are some similarities in the fact that um he's trying to eliminate his own guilt and i think that's why he flees Mm -hmm. and she doesn't have that option grace doesn't Mm -hmm. have the option but he does because of his privilege and circumstance. But, um, and I really think he's enacting whatever relationship with Rachel was her name. Yeah. Because he wants to be having this relationship with Grace mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. And he's, I think he's trying to bridge that um, inability to get to her mental. You know Pandora's box, by exerting the physical on someone else. So, so I, I don't know if that's a similarity or not. But um, he he is definitely not as saintly as I once thought. He's not a scoundrel, yeah. but he is just kind of um, this mediocre man of science, and mm-hmm. and I don't. But who's much- given.
0: All of this benefit of the doubt, right? Mm -hmm. So he's just Mm -hmm. kind of, it's kind of like a, (laughs) he's just like a dude who, because he's a dude, he gets,
1: you know, accolades. Right, right, right. And, and believed and um, he, he is sensitive though to the um, kind of how grovelings, maybe that's not right, the right word, but the interactions he has with the reverend and these other individuals he comes in contact with. I think part of it is he's just, um, selfish as you alluded to earlier, that he wants this story all to himself. And he's kind of, he's not, I don't know that he's intentionally dragging it out, but he, he wants to be the great discoverer, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to crack this, um, this mental conundrum and um, yeah, I think there are some similarities in the two.
0: Yeah. The other similarity that I had thought of was um, basically the crimes that they committed. Now one person never, I mean, Dr. Jordan never, if it's a quote unquote crime to commit, you know, fornication and adultery with a married woman. Um, But he, though that, act that he committed first happened when he was sleepwalking and it's alluding to Mm -hmm. the idea that the murders that happened where grace was involved she was in a state of sleepwalking or a state of hypnosis so i thought that was kind of an interesting thing Um, and then at the end of course um he ends up becoming actually um mentally ill um and having a mental disorder because of the injuries sustained in the civil war. Yes. Um, yes, Just as grace is being freed from prison, which is such kind of a, it it almost, I feel like their paths kind of cross at that point or at the point of maybe where he, his life in Toronto kind of goes downhill or something, but I feel like it's, you know, he has brought that
1: up. Yeah. Anyway. So I go ahead. No, I, I, I remember thinking that as I was listening to the last little bit. And I didn't jot it down, so I didn't remember it. But um, it's exactly right. They they switch. And all the while, the last couple chapters, she's writing to him, right? This is just, mm-hmm. these are open-ended letters to him that she's not right. going to get a response back. And they might not even get get to him. But this is her obviously telling us the reader, the end of her story. Right. Um, But yeah, they, they have some sort of, they have a relationship that is strange in the sense that it probably would have never come to fruition under other circumstances. In no way would their past probably have crossed Unless mm-hmm. in this particular instance, you know, he's right, he essentially is assigned to her, or he takes her on, and in the hopes of you know, grander things, and, yeah, and then abandons her,
0: <laughs> right? Because he can, because you know what, he's a master and she's a servant, and the servants have to clean up all the messes, mm-hmm. yep, yeah, um. I know that you don't. You said you kind of had mixed feelings about some of the story being um, told through letters, Mm -hmm. but I just had to say I loved. um, So at the end of the book, they're kind of wrapping up the story, and you're only getting the response back from his mom um yes. <laughs> it, it, basically you know Rachel has been sending all these e- letters to I said emails not quite emails letters to Dr. Jordan and they're being intercepted by his mom because he's off fighting civil war um mm-hmm. and she like basically is reading them and I just thought it was so funny her way of saying like you should be careful of what you write because someone might read
1: it you know you know it's <laughs> just like <laughs> I thought it was so was great funny. I I like that portion too. And she's, yes, she was very, but she was so diplomatic about her her (laughs) center towards this slidey woman.
0: So did you have any other thoughts about her marrying Jamie Walsh other than you thought that was kind of more hopeful
1: than? Well, you know, it was disappointing, of course, which I feel like I've heard this in other situations where, he felt so guilty. This just mm. guilt racked him. That he, but he wanted to hear the details. He wanted to know all about Grace's suffering at his supposed hands. Or he, he's convincing himself that because he uh, spoke against her in the trial, she went mm-hmm. to jail all because of him. And she he wants to know. And I, you know, it's a bit of a deranged sort of empathy. I don't even think it's an empathy. I think it's just a um, something of the times, right? Maybe it's Mm -hmm. a religious kind of flagging yourself for just not being the perfect person that you wanted to be in a certain moment. And so you relive that. And, you know, Grace indulged him. She, Mm -hmm. (laughs) She told him and... She didn't quite understand, but she went into the details kind of like the more horrific it was, the the greater his joy, essentially. Of course
0: I'm the cynical one. I'm always the cynical one. But I guess I was just thinking it's another way that she's an alias. You know, it's who is she really? She's yeah, you know, um she's painting this whole picture for Jamie to make him feel a certain way about her or about their relationship. Um, And and once again, Jamie is he's assuming because of his small part in the story that the whole story revolved around him, (laughs) you know, and so it's like here she is making it making him feel a certain way with the with her words. I mean, she was just really that to me, I think, was just her skill of weaving the words in a way and telling a story and making people feel what they wanted to feel about her. Now we come to the part of the show where my guest and I share with our listeners what's making us happy. So, Miranda, would you like to go first and tell us what's making you happy?
1: Yes. So, recently I... Well, I was sick. That didn't make me happy. But I got to watch Forever with um, Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph. Oh, i heard of this. it's just a whole short series on... Amazon Prime and I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, some really phenomenal um, television I guess you would call that and what else I'm getting ready for our annual pie day which I'm very excited about and we always love to have people over for pie before Thanksgiving yeah uh, so you introduced things... us to
0: that and that yeah. uh, tradition
1: that's really fun yeah those things are making me happy and um, the you know, I've never, <laughs> this is terrible to admit, but I didn't love Christmas for a lot, a lot of years until I had kids. And I think Christmas mm-hmm. with little kids is kind of just magical, And so mm-hmm. that's fun. I'm looking forward to that.
0: I'm sure it'll be a wild and crazy house <laughs> this year yeah. with two and both of them old enough to probably participate. It sounds like. Yeah.
1: So what? tell me what's making you happy these days.
0: Yeah. So November to me is really a month about cooking. I think a lot about food during this month um, because of Thanksgiving, of course. And I do like to cook as a hobby uh, when I have the time. I, I don't always have the time. And I don't, when I don't have the time, I don't like to be made to do a chore, but I enjoy it when I can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just love food and I'm sort of a foodie. Yes. <laughs> and I listen to several food-related podcasts and I just want to recommend one of them. Um, it's called Local Mouthful. It is put on by two food writers slash bloggers. They live in Philly. Um, And the idea is about sort of home cooking and local food culture. Um, And though I don't live in Philly, although... and I never have, I've visited, but, and that was one of the places I was kind of hoping we'd go to medical school, but we didn't. Um, (laughs) I just, I find that the topics they are not, they present are not location specific. They're so relevant. Um, most of the time they're just talking about food and cooking techniques or formulas or kind of their approach to food. Um, and they have this quarterly community potluck, which I'm very jealous of. Um, I, even though I kind of think potlucks are kind of gross, but I've gotten a little bit better about eating potlucks, but anyway, but I just love the idea of coming together with people around recipes or they, they, this year they're doing the rest, the recipes of Deborah Madison, who's this vegetarian cook book author. Um, and so it just kind of sounds really fun, but anyway. But I just enjoy; they have a very soothing voices, and it's very stress free and enjoyable. Um, just conversations about food and cooking. So,
1: <laughs> I just recommend a checking podcast. it out. Master, you definitely are. <laughs>
0: I love podcasts. Yes, <laughs> yes,
1: I do too. I don't listen to them as much these days, but I, I think I've been a podcast listener since like 2002. I love them to pieces, and I think people are pretty polarized on them, but my um favorite cooking podcast, The Splendid Table, I am just still so sad about Lynn Rosetto Casper not being the host anymore, which, you know, they have a new host and that's okay, you have to move on, but I uh, might have to just start listening to reruns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, I
0: was sad when she left and I've tried to get into his podcast or his style a little bit more, but and I wasn't always a very faithful listener to Lynn all the time either. I'd go on and off of it. But I have I have to say it's kind of gone down to like the lowest priority podcast when I listen to it. It's like if I have nothing else, I might listen to that. But just <laughs> <laughs> <which is> sad. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Definitely well,
0: um, thank you, Miranda, for being on my
1: podcast. Oh, it was a treat. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Thank you for having me again.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book. If you'd like to follow Miranda on Instagram, you can find her at Book Bloom. You can also follow me on Instagram at Infinitely Prefer a Book. Next month's book is The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper by Phaedra Patrick. In the meantime, you can reach out to me and let me know what you thought of our discussion. Happy reading.